Hi there, it's uh, Peter Whittle here from the New Culture Forum. Uh, it's a bit of an ad hoc broadcast we're doing today. It's Saturday the 10th of April. I'm here with Rafe Hagelmanku, of course, who you know from the channel. Uh, we got together today because we didn't really want it to go unmarked, the momentous event yesterday of the death of Prince Philip. This is obviously a huge event for our country and uh, we wanted to probably consider it and look at it and the implications of it, what it really means for the country and for the monarchy. And uh, I want to start actually by asking Rafe, because a lot of people who know Rafe from counterculture on China would not necessarily know. Rafe, you know, you have been a royal commentator for what, two decades now? Yes, I've been a royal commentator for 20 odd years since the death of um, Diana, Princess of Wales, in, in 1997. I've marked uh, every single one of the major events of, of royal history since then for various international media. And it's important that we actually put the death of the Duke of Edinburgh into context yeah. within that, because this is, make no mistake, an extremely important event, not in, only in terms of the royal family and British history, but in terms of our culture. Mm -hmm. Because this was a man who lived for a hundred years and who really epitomized many of those key core values mm -hmm. that we associate with the royal family. And the transformation that has occurred within society, one could even say within the royal family, over that period is very much worth analyzing. And also the impact that it has on Britain as a, as a whole too. Because we have to realize that within monarchies, it's, it is events such as weddings, funerals, mm. jubilees, coronations, that actually become the markers, the points for us to reflect upon where we are as a nation, mm. who we are as a nation, and what we believe are the key values of our nation. But you see, it's interesting because th th that is actually when Walter Badgett, the great you know, constitutional historian writing in the 19th century, he talked about these universal facts as being the central, one of the central appeals and strengths of monarchy, actually, that essentially marriages, births, deaths, it kind of like gives this lineage, doesn't it, to all of us? Absolutely. Badger spoke about the ceremonial aspect of, uh, of the monarchy, and that really is one of the key elements that we have to look at, because, for example... One of the downsides of being the world's oldest continuous democracy is the fact that we don't have, as a nation, a battle of independence, a, re a revolution, yeah. any great tumultuous event that we can look to as being the forging event for our civilization, for our country. And so being in a monarchy, it is those events that as royal births, weddings, deaths, coronations, jubilees, that provide those rare opportunities for us to come together as a nation. America has July the 4th, it's yeah. Independence Day, July the 14th in, in France for Bastille Day, you know, in, in Canada it's July, July the 1st, Canada Day. But th those are events which mark the forging of a nation. We haven't got that. So it's through the royal family, the living constitution of the mm -hmm. crown, mm -hmm. rather than a piece of paper, it's the living embodiment of the constitution that is the monarchy, and people need to understand. And I mean, for example, 
lots of people on Twitter have been moaning about why are we focusing so much on the BBC about the about Prince Philip during this time. It's because he is part of that living constitution of the crown. And that is actually who we are as a people and as a nation. Yeah. And it's one of the few times we can get together to actually cohesively reflect upon our nation, history, past, constitution. You, you mentioned Twitter there. Thank goodness, as has been said many times, Twitter is not Britain. But um, what has been your impression of the way that the death has been handled by the BBC? Because... I don't know if you might remember, but when the Queen Mother died, there were quite a lot of criticisms that it was very slapdash, that it was too informal. It doesn't appear to have been that way this time, does it? Well, I know that many of many of our viewers are, are critics of, of the BBC, but I have to say there's been a marked difference between how they responded to the Queen Mother's death and how they responded to the Duke of Edinburgh's death. And yes, people will famously remember how Peter Sissons wonderfully decent reporter and yeah, broadcaster yeah. wore a maroon tie rather than a black tie. Contrast that, for example, to what we've seen today and then in the last 24 hours with, 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 with black attire everywhere. But there was also this, this very destructive attitude in, in, in 2002 when the Queen Mother died that the nation was over monarchy. We have to remember mm. the 90s were so destructive. And there was this sort of idea that nobody would come out for this centenarian Nobody was interested. But what happened? The British public came out in their tens of thousands mm -hmm. to show their support. And it was almost as if it was a last dying gift of the Queen Mother to her daughter, whose golden jubilee was just a few months later. And everybody at the time had assumed that the golden jubilee would be a damp squib. Yeah. And it was almost as if the Queen Mother's funeral laid the groundwork for the, for mm -hmm. the golden jubilee after it's a great shame now of course because of covid that the public have don't have a similar opportunity to come out mm. in great numbers to show their support for prince philip but i think the lives of the queen mother and the duke of edinburgh are so similar in terms of the values that they espoused and the importance that it shows in terms of that essential british spirit of stoicism which i think is waning so terribly and it would have it had not been for covid this could actually have been a huge opportunity for the public to actually reconnect with what it truly means to be british i think this thing about stoicism is particularly interesting at the moment because it, it's like the argument about what we are culturally stoic or, or not has been fought out in microcosm in the royal family itself so you had Diana. I remember there was this sort of like, there used to be this kind of game people played in the 90s, you know, like a, 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 a rather silly dinner party game. Where it was a queen or Diana, queen or Diana. And what they really meant was one was not talking about emotions. The other one was spilling them out all over the place. And so in, in a way, the royal family have been a kind of playhouse for this cultural battle, haven't they? You're quite right, absolutely. And I'm not going to be the one to try to compare and contrast the Duke of Edinburgh and his childhood upbringing and background, for example, with those of his, say, say his grandchildren, well, and uh, <laughs> and look at, at, at how they, how they reacted to that. What I will say is that Britain transformed completely, or let us say, it became apparent to us all 
1997, with the death of Diana, that Britain was a different country. Mm. Or as Chamberlain might have said, a faraway country about which we know little, which was his reference to Poland at the mm. time. Because there we saw people in the crowds mourning Diana in a completely illogical manner, screaming, yeah. shouting, crying for this woman that they had never met more than they probably had cried for their own grandmother or mother. This national hysteria that we went through. And it was almost as if everything that we thought of as being British, stoicism, reserve, sang-froid, the stiff upper lip, none of that was present during the death of Diana. And that was a alarming wake-up call for many of us who basically wanted to assume that Britain in this current form would have continued. But the thing is, you know, you're not going to draw comparisons, fair enough, you know, I, I don't mind doing it. But, you know, obviously, a while ago we had the interview with Meghan and Harry and things, and it is all about victimhood, it's all about how badly I'm being treated. The fact is, is that what we do know, and what many people will know now for the first time, is that Philip, in the early days, oh. really faced huge hostility, actually, as this kind of incoming foreigner, you know, uh, with no role as such. But he basically really, really abided by that dictum of never complain, never explain. All right, well, let's draw comparisons then, right? I want to give a few, a few couple of days before going into this, given how soon he had died. But yes, absolutely. But look, look before that. This was a man who had the most unorthodox childhood. Prince Philip would have been put into care today had he not been, had he lived today and not been a member of the royal family. This man's upbringing was so tragic and so devastating that one can't imagine how, say, for example, Prince William or Prince Harry would have coped had they been in his position. And yet Prince... Philip showed none of the signs of stress and trauma that we have seen with younger generations. This was a man who was born on a kitchen table in Corfu during the time when the Greek monarchy, of which he was in, into which he was in the line of succession, was extremely unstable. His grandfather, King George I of Greece, had been assassinated. His family were arrested and exiled. King George V in Britain sent the Royal Navy out to rescue them. He was taken out of Greece in an orange box. Mm. He was then shuttled around between family members because his parents were incapable of looking after him. His mother was a schizophrenic, mm. put into an asylum. His father had no care for him whatsoever, went to Monte Carlo to live with a mistress. He was passed between uncles and aunts and brothers and, and, and sisters, rather, his sisters got, re got married into Germany. His favourite sister died in a plane crash. Yeah. His guardian died at the age of 44 from cancer. All by the time Prince Philip was 16 years of age. Mm -hmm. Now think of what that would put on the uh, mind of a person living today. Mm -hmm. We're talking about Oprah Winfrey's special for six episodes, let alone mm -hmm. the one episode that she granted Prince Harry. And yet... He was stoic through it all. He said, well, yes, this happened to me. Life must go on. Yes, but also the crucial thing is really is that, one, he would never have dreamt of talking endlessly about his father and his mother and, and how it affected him. And, and I think the thing is, this is a very important point to make really, because is that people might like hearing all of that stuff in the short term. 
But oddly enough, over a period of time, I think that they actually start to reevaluate it. And, you know, so it's the immediacy as opposed to the long termism, if you like. But I think what's important is to actually look at Prince Philip's life mm. and see how traumatic it was and how little time he had in his entire life for, for the indulgence of self-analysis, mm. for the indulgence of all of the things that we now see portrayed in contemporary society, mm. but also through Prince Harry and Meghan, for example, and compare and contrast that. Also, as you said, look at how Prince Philip <laughs> was accepted, or not accepted, I should say, into the royal family when he first met uh, when he was first betrothed uh, with, with the Queen in 1947 yeah. with a royal marriage. He was an outsider, he was German. The royal household at the time, the establishment, was very closed. They regarded him as rough, as uneducated, as ill-suited to the role. And it took him uh, a good 10 years to actually mm. get to a point where he would be firmly established within the royal family. And he played a major role in ensuring that those who came after him would have an easier ride of it. He was a great comfort to Diana, for example, mm -hmm. and he made a great effort to ensure that those people who were marrying into the firm had an easy time of it. Now, he went through all of that, or well, that background of his, and you compare and contrast that upbringing to Prince Harry's upbringing. Mm -hmm. You compare his entry to Meghan's entry, and I'm sorry, mm -hmm. but there is no comparison at all. Mm -hmm. And you really begin to think about the thin skin of contemporary society and how it is, I mean whenever I think about these things I always think about Sw Sweden because Swedish children who are probably the most privileged or amongst the most privileged in the world have the highest levels of dep depression in the world and why is that because the school system constantly asks them <laughs> about their feelings mm -hmm. about their emotions and they obsess about these things and I can't help think of that correlation mm. no so I, I, I think a good brisk walk in the open air never did anyone any harm. Where do you think this leaves? I think it's obvious, uh, you know, it's just no great insight here that the there will be a huge amount of sympathy for the Queen. Um, my feeling, uh, right, uh, about the Queen is that in recent years she's gone on to an entirely different level, right? But she is now really the repository, the sole repository of what you were describing, really, isn't she? I mean, there's no one, I don't think Charles is in the same way, perhaps, and, but, but she's still, you know, she's the last wartime monarch we're going to have, isn't she? That's correct. I still think that there are vestiges of the imperial monarchy in the Prince of Wales and in the Princess Royal. I think there is, a, there is a, so much... You called them once the last black and white royals. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, it's true. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it is very true. And so there is that change. I mean, there was a 10-year gap between, for example, the birth of the yeah. Prince of Wales and the Princess Royal and Andrew and Edward. And there is that shift. I tried to avoid, in 2002, saying that the Queen Mother's death was the end of an era because I regarded the Queen as being her mother's daughter, mm -hmm. and you had Prince Philip still at the time. But we are at that point, essentially, where we're coming to the point where there is an end to those fundamental concepts that we associated with the British character, mm -hmm. that stoicism, that reserve, that concept of service and duty before and above all else. Never complain, 
never explain. Mm. And Prince of Wales has explained. There are others who have, but it was really the Duke of Edinburgh and, and the Queen. And it was, very, it was put very well by one commentator who said the Prince of Wales was a romantic, the Duke of Edinburgh was a pragmatist. Mm. Very similar in many respects in terms of their interests, mm. but it was in terms of their, their attitude. And I hate to say it, but we've come to a point where we have seen Britain go through this cultural revolution over the last mm. 20, 30, if not more years. And the fact that the Duke of Edinburgh isn't better appreciated and respected and indeed loved today is a sign of how far that revolution has gone. Because this was a man who was so concerned about conservation but he wasn't a tree hugger. No, no, he wasn't no. a green. He wasn't an environmentalist. This was a man like Teddy Roosevelt in America who shot, who stalked, who hunted, but was so concerned about the eradication of species rather than the torture done to a panda in a zoo somewhere. He didn't care about those things. He wouldn't care about tearing up trees at Windsor Castle, but he was very concerned about mm. forestation and deforestation. This was a man who was a conservationist, as a conservative would be, a conservative mm -hmm. conservative. This was a man who was concerned about art, philanthropy, so many things which his, his son also took on, took on. None of that holds any, any, any sway today because the ignorant masses that I see complaining about the Duke of Edinburgh focus on things such as the gaffes, alleged gaffes that he's made. Thing I don't think I don't know. I wouldn't call the ignorant masses. I think the mass of people do appreciate. I no, think on that, Twitter, I meant. Yeah, so. Twitter. Let's be be quite clear about that. The the people who take offence, the kind of people who take offence, are the people who will take offence. And in fact, that's what they are doing. And if you made a few comments or whatever, that's exactly they'll go off on that. I think your point, I think, is absolutely right. It's almost like he's too big a person to exist in our rather small age. I mean, we live in a, a small, very trammelled age, I think, now. One thing about the monarchy, generally, um, there was a poll out this week, um, which uh, was looking at people wanted William, 20% uh, more wanted William to succeed the Queen than Charles, uh, be that as it may. Uh, what I found interesting about the poll, something, because I've written about it myself in that book I did, is that around about, it was about between 15 and 20, so about 17% of people actually said, no, neither of them, let's have a precedent. What that really means though, is that since we've been talking about monarchy, and we first actually did a debate, didn't we, in Durham, when we met a long time ago, since we do, it's not really changed. People keep saying, oh, but it's the Queen, they're thinking of the Queen. No, when you sort of say to people, after she has gone, do you want it to continue? Republicanism stays around about that figure. Ipsos Mori, one of our most trusted polling uh, organisations, has asked this question for well nigh 30 years. Oh, 50, I think, yeah. If not more. Yeah. But the question hasn't changed for the last 20, 30 years. And there has never been a more stable question, I would say, mm. in Britain than support for the monarchy, which has barely wavered, even during the 90s, yeah. when the monarchy was at its lowest ebb. In 92, during the Annus Horribilis and the, the destruction of Windsor Castle, and 97 with the death of Diana, even then there wasn't a noticeable dip for this. So yes, 
it may well be that 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 that, that, that um, the monarchy will in, will endure and survive. Mm. I think though uh, it will be a different monarchy, right? Um, it's a different country, isn't it? Well, I wonder what he would have made of all the mask stuff. I wonder what he would have made of you know people walking uh, on the streets, like on the way here, you know, coming home today. Uh, people walking about with masks. We're actually in the open air where they don't need to. I, I, I just often wonder what he would have thought of that. I mean, you know, you don't need to speculate, but um, I can't imagine he would have had that much. The, the monarchy has endured and survived in this country, whereas it's collapsed in France and yeah. Germany and Russia and elsewhere because our monarchy uniquely has been able to evolve and adapt mm. slowly and subtly, never leading the vanguard, but always being behind and slowly changing. And so the monarchy of today is not the monarchy of the 90s, which is not the monarchy of the 70s, which is not the monarchy of the 50s. And that has been the solution to its success, changing necessarily, but keeping the fundamental trappings of power. My only concern is that the monarchy risks disconnecting itself completely if it is to really follow the path which, unfortunately, we are seeing laid down by the younger generation. And if it loses all of the lessons and the great, the, the great example set to it by people such as the Duke of Edinburgh, yeah. the Queen, and the Queen Mother. I think the biggest thing possibly facing any future monarch is that we all know the Queen has never given an interview. Philip did under serious duress. <laughs> um, the Queen has never died. But that era is entirely gone. That is simply impossible now, isn't it? Whether it's Charles or whether it's William or whoever it is. Absolutely. The Queen Mother gave an interview once. King George V wrapped her knuckles for it and she never gave another interview again. Really? And she became the most loved member of the royal family. <laughs> Why? Because she was a blank canvas onto yes, which we could yes. all put our views. Now the reality was she was perhaps arguably further to the right than Genghis Khan on many issues, <laughs> but nobody actually knew that. And I think that's one of the qualities that the Duchess of Cambridge, Kate, yeah. has understood. Yes. Don't speak out on these issues, because mm. as soon as you speak out on an issue, mm. you become political and you divide. Mm. And we've seen that with Megan, for example. As soon as you speak out, you become divisive. Mm. And the success, I would argue, of the royal family depends upon that. And I see great strength in the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, Prince William and Kate, in, 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 in choosing causes that are important but aren't divisive. Yeah, yeah. Well, all right, but I mean, it's been good to talk to you about, about it. I mean, we both obviously care hugely. We're talking from a position of caring a lot about the institution and also about uh, Britain. Um, but anyway, um, thank you very much for watching. I, I think um, I don't quite know what the appropriate way is of ending something like this, but um, I think uh, our thoughts obviously are with the Queen. And um, next week, because we're recording this on Saturday, we're going to have the funeral, uh, which of course will be in uh, much different circumstances than otherwise it would be. Um, but I think that by then, maybe some real appreciation, I think, would have been flowing for the past week. Ray, thanks very much. Thank you. And, uh, thank you. And uh, we'll see you back in the studio um, next time around. Okay, take care. Thank you.